run the Beatitudes still. Um, and it's been a, a really good series, hasn't it? You know, just that little passage, so much has come out of it. Beautiful and challenging at the same time. But it's the best thing about it is it's straight from the heart of Jesus. And it's, you know, it's his words. Um, and I love that. I love the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of my most favourite passages in the Bible. You know, it's like three chapters, isn't it? Five, six, and seven. But it's, uh, it's uh, you know, the more you find out about it, the more Jesus' love just oozes through. And I just love that. His tenderness towards us. And, you know, even when he's putting people straight that tenderness and that love that comes through his words. I think we can learn so much from it. So it's a really good one to study. But we're, we're, we're just staying out of the Beatitudes. We're not going through the whole of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. You can study that for yourself. But let's just read it through again. Matthew 5, verse 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So last week, John focused on mercy and being merciful and, and hand in hand with that is forgiveness, isn't it? And, and what a challenge forgiveness is. It's not something that we just do once. It's something we have to do a lot in our lifetimes, isn't it? We think we've got it sort of nailed and then something or somebody crops up and then we've got to start all this process of forgiveness again. Um, it, it is, it's ongoing. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes we wrestle with forgiveness and unforgiveness. But what I've, I've realized is, is that forgiveness is not a feeling. We don't forgive when we feel like it. Um, and many of us do that, don't we? We wait till we feel ready to forgive. But it's not a feeling. If you wait until you're ready, if you wait until you feel it, it's never going to happen. Because when some people hurt you, they hurt you. You know, so you've got to, it's a choice. Forgiveness begins with a choice. You choose to forgive, whether you're feeling it or not. The feelings are going to line up later. And that's what it means, doesn't it, to take authority. So you make a strong life decision, you make a change, and you base it on God's word. We choose to forgive, like God chose to forgive us. It's not based on our feelings. And hurt people, they hurt other people, don't they? And people will hurt us. But like I said, it's our choice to hand it all over to God and say, I forgive you. 
Anyway, that's all. He said it all last week. I'm not going to go on about it. But if you're struggling with forgiveness, here is a great time to come and, and deal with it. Come and pray at the end. So let's go on to the next one. The sixth of the, of the Beatitudes from Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I don't know about you, but I used to think that each of the Beatitudes addressed a different group of people. You've got like the merciful or the peacemakers or, you know, who else have we got? The righteous and the persecuted, you know, and there's the meek over there. It's like all these different little groups of people. That's what I used to feel. It, it, it sort of read that way to me. I don't know about you. And then there's like this holy group, isn't there? The pure in heart. They're a bit like the Proverbs 31 woman. We all know about her, don't we, ladies? She's just perfect. Um, but the pure in heart, they're right up there, aren't they? They, um, they don't put a foot wrong. They don't walk. They glide. Flowers bloom when they walk past. You know, they emit this radiant glow. He's pure in heart, like Moses when he came down the mountain. Wisdom and grace just flow. They're just pure. And, you know, people are healed in their very shadows. But I'm exaggerating, obviously. You know, the, that, that group of people, that type of person doesn't really exist, does it? But I would like it if flowers bloomed when I walked past, you know. Um... But because we only see a portion, don't we, of each other's life? You know, we only see a portion. And um, we all have times when things are flowing amazingly well. And we all have times when we fall back to earth with a bang and upset everybody we speak to. And we can all move in the miraculous. I'm not saying that's not attainable. We can all move in the miraculous. We all have the Holy Spirit. It's not a special, unattainable group of people. They're not separate groups of people at all. Each beatitude is relevant to us. Sometimes, you know, at different times in our lives. You know, maybe a few at the same time. Or even just like one by one. Jesus speaks to each of us through each of them. So, hands up if you're pure in heart. I knew that nobody would put their hands up. It was a bit of a gamble. I'd be surprised if anyone had. Um, because we're all a work in progress, aren't we? We all know that. But we also know that God sees and knows every single part of us. He knows how we feel, how we think, what we, how we treat people, you know. He knows everything. If I put my hand up, would that make me arrogant? Or pride? Would it be pride? Then that means that I'm absolutely not pure in heart. It's a bit of a conundrum, isn't it? Um, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John's talked about that. That's cropped up a few times. So yeah, we've all been tainted. We've all sinned. We've all, we know what's right and we know what's wrong and we know we've done wrong things. And you know, the Bible says that we, we're born into a a sinful world, how, how can we say that we're pure in heart? 
And a few weeks ago, I, I spoke on the second one of the Beatitudes, the, the one that says, blessed are, are those who mourn. And it was about how we mourn over sin and death and how the Holy Spirit uh, comes alongside us in our grief and sadness and comforts us. But before I started on that, I looked quickly at how it seems that the Beatitudes uh, were not so much prescriptive, but more prophetic. If they were prescriptive, it's like you do such and such and then this will happen. Um, but more prophetic, leading to an active participation with God. He doesn't need to bargain with us. He doesn't need to convince us of his majesty or his sovereignty. God is God, whether you like it or not. God is God whether you believe in him or not. He's still God. He's not gone anywhere. doesn't make him not exist if somebody doesn't believe him. Um, he's God Almighty, creator of all the earth. No matter what you've been taught at school or what the prevailing thoughts are, if you've been laughed at or ridiculed for believing that God created the earth, you know, it's, a, it's an increasing... It, an increasingly atheistic culture, isn't it? But if I'm wrong, and I, I believe I'm not wrong, if I was, you know, if I was, when I die, I've really not lost anything, have I, by believing in God. Um, but those who refuse God, who refuse to even explore the possibility of existence, his existence, if they're wrong, when they pass away, they've lost everything. So he's God. He does not change. His power does not diminish if there's no one around believing in him. The universe only exists because he allows it to. He is God. He is good. He is pure. He continually surprises us with his grace. I'm always blown away by those little things. I've said it a few times. You know, why is he bothered about my car or my life or my work or what I watch or think about why is he bothered about the smaller things but he does he cares you know why would he want to help me be on time for an appointment when everything's gone wrong why would he pop a ticket you know have someone pop a ticket on a machine so I've got something to put on my car when I forgot my money that's happened a few times I don't know whether it's happened to you usually at the hospital. You know, it's a godsend. He doesn't need to. He doesn't have to, but he does. My life and your life is not a disaster because God dwells in it, in your life. But what's got to do with anything? But, you know, no matter how you see yourself or how others see you, pure in heart is how God actually sees you. And it's very hard to swallow sometimes that, isn't it? We are commanded to be perfect as he is perfect. If it's a command from God, then it's not impossible. When you accepted Jesus, you committed your life to him, you repented of your sin, you saw your own brokenness, his blood cleansed you of all sin. In fact, if we look at those Beatitudes as a journey, 
It's a salvation journey. Then look at where we're at now. We started at poor in spirit, broken, in need of a saviour. We mourn because we're sinful. We know sin leads to death. We're grieving for our loved ones, facing our own mortality. This leads to repentance. We become meek, aware of our failings, humbling our, humble in our newfound faith, finding balance where there wasn't any before. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. We want to know how to be better, to become more like Jesus. It's then we realise just how much we've been forgiven and realise we must do the same. So beginning to see through Jesus' eyes, we have mercy on other people. Forgiveness sets us free because we're no longer bound and bitter. Our hearts are no longer hardened. And now here we are. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We've been going through a purification process. If we look at water and we're able to drink it and call it pure, it's because it's been through a filtration process. It's been through a purification process. We're blessed in this country that we can drink the tap water. We trust that it's been filtered and cleansed in some way. And I've researched it, but I won't bore you with the each stage of filtration. But at each stage, the water is tested to ensure that it's at the co correct purification point. I used to live on a farm and we had, um, we were really blessed. It, it had its own spring. It was out of the way of all the pipes. So we, we had our own spring. But it would have been foolish for us to just drink it straight from the spring or pump it straight to our taps because what if an animal had died in it or, you know, it had got bacteria in there. It had to go through uh, a pump which had a UV light and all this filtration stuff and it, and it cleansed the water so that it was safe for us to drink. But it had to be tested every, every so often to make sure that it was still safe to drink. But I think that's like a, a glorious picture of what Jesus is doing for us. He saves us, he cleanses us, and then he keeps cleaning us. And we get tested, and then we get cleansed. He came to purify us. Titus 2, don't often read from Titus, do we? 13 to 14 says... We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He didn't just pay for our sins, he purified us by his blood. And as that salvation journey showed, he's faithful to purify us. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 21-23, that th who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. In our salvation, we are purified by his shed blood. 
given both to pay the penalty for sin and to purify us from sin. There's still a process for us to walk in. We still have to participate in it. And sometimes our hearts will be tested to see if there's anything we need to work on or surrender. But our Father sees us through the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. The Greek word for pure in Matthew 5.8 is katharos. It means to be clean, blameless, unstained from guilt. This word stands out because it refers specifically to that which is purified by fire or by pruning. The prophet Malachi, speaking about the coming Messiah, said this. Malachi 3 verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. The refiner's fire was like super hot. It's a furnace. It melts precious metals so that all the impurities rise to the surface to be skimmed off. And then you've got the fuller. It's an old ancient job. The fuller's job was to cleanse and whiten cloth. And they often used a field outside of the city or the town because the stench was just awful. They must have used ammonia or something. I don't know how they did it, but the stench was very great. But when they came back, the cloth was white and without stain. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but I find it really humbling that Jesus refers to us as already pure in heart. In fact, I've had a bit of a problem with it. It's been one of those things I've had to wrestle with, that, God, you see me as pure in heart. It's us. It's me. But, you know, as I've gone through the scriptures, it's exactly how he describes us. We're pure because that was the work he did. Didn't Jesus say he was going to come back for a pure and spotless bride? That's you. It's the church. It's those who have surrendered their lives to him. Their whole heart to God. Salvation transforms us, doesn't it? He takes away the heart of stone, replaces it with a heart of flesh. He renews our minds. He who began a good work in you is faithful and just to complete it. We're being purified. We're going through that filtration. He sees us as pure. Matthew 3, verse 11, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he is coming, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We baptize by water, then we baptize by the Holy Spirit, and then the evidence of that is speaking in tongues, but then baptized by fire, are they the same? Some people think so. Some people think fire and Holy Spirit, that's the same. Some people think it's a difference. God's holy fire um, consumed the offering in the Holy of Holies. God's holy fire was what Moses saw at the burning bush. It was a sign that he was present. So maybe he's saying, look, I'm with you. The full trinity was mentioned in that passage. Jesus and the Holy Spirit 
and God, the presence of God, the fire of God. When, when John the Baptist said this, he was speaking of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are, because of Jesus, allowed into that holy presence of God because he purified us. When fire purifies something, the substance is heated so much, so hot that the impurities are removed. If you've ever driven over the M62 or looked at moorland in the summer, you might see great patches of burnt moorland or, you know, it might be burning or whatever. Most of the time, that's not somebody just being careless with a barbecue. It's a land management technique known as swaling. And they set a controlled fire which burns up all the dead vegetation so that the new growth can come through. And it's like that for us, isn't it? When we get saved, all that old stuff is burnt up by the fire of God. And then the new growth can come. Jesus refers to believers as the branches and he is the vine. And for a vine to produce fruit, we know it needs to be pruned. I told you last time about our grapevine that my son butchered. Well, I'd never seen as many grapes that year. And he'd like, honestly, I thought, what is he doing? It had been scary to watch him just cut everything off it. But the result was amazing, more than I could have ever wished for. So these methods of purification were not easy. They were a process. They're long and laborious. And that can be like us. The Bible shows us we have been purified and we are being purified and will be tested. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And we get so used to saying that that sometimes it becomes it sounds a bit easy, doesn't it? It sounds like too normal, if you know what I mean. But listen, what he had to go through for us to be purified was not easy. It wasn't easy at all, was it? We know that his, um, in fact, we couldn't even fathom what he had to go through so that we could be purified. We know his death paid for our sin, but we don't often fully acknowledge how his shed blood actually cleanses us from sin. And we still walk around saying that we're sinners. I don't believe that we are anymore. We were, but now we're not. We've been born again. What about the cross? What about his blood? Is that who we are? Are we still sinners? No. We've been saved. That's who we were. We are saved now. Isaiah 63 says, this is in the Amplified, Who is this who comes from Edom with crimson-stained garments from Bosra? This one, the Messiah, who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his might. It is I, the one, who speaks in righteousness, proclaiming vindication, mighty to save. I love that verse. It's like he marches in and rescues us, doesn't he? Oh, no one more powerful than Jesus. No one more holy. He swept in and he came to save us. So the truly pure in heart then are those who have surrendered their lives. 
They've been declared innocent because of the work of Jesus at the cross. And they're being sanctified by his refining fire and his pruning. The more we come into the presence of God, the more purified we get. We need each other, don't we? Wash daily in the water of his word. How are we purified? By the blood of Jesus. He paid the price for our sin. So why am I talking about something that you already are? Because, do you know what? We don't fully comprehend who we are as Christians. You know, if we, when we don't comprehend it, we don't, have our, we don't walk in our identity. If you don't realize that you're free, you're not going to walk like a free person, are you? How can we move in our call effectively if we don't see ourselves as God sees us, pure in heart? How can we love other people if we don't see them as God sees them? We are a new creation and we need to know who we are in order to walk in the authority that he's given us. Think about it. If you were given a role and you thought you weren't good enough, then you're going to make yourself small, aren't you, in that role? You wouldn't feel confident enough to fully walk it out, would you? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So don't think that you're the same as before. You are not. How can we walk in authority and walk in all the promises with the full power of the Holy Spirit behind us if we look at ourselves as anything less than saved and whole and cleansed. There's so much, I see in it increasingly, there's so much identity confusion swirling around right now. People just don't know who they are or who they're meant to be or what their purpose is. But God does not make mistakes. He knows you, he saved you, he called you. He's working on you, he's rooting for you, shows you how to love others as he loves them because, you know, let's face it, no one gets saved by some judgmental Christian shouting in their faces. Romans 2.4 says it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. The Greek word for heart, with the pure in heart, in Matthew 8, is cardia. This can be applied to the physical heart, but it also refers to the spiritual center of life. It's where thoughts, desires, sense of purpose, will, understanding, and character reside. So to be pure in heart means to be blameless in who we are. Being pure in heart involves having a singleness of heart towards God. A pure heart has no hypocrisy, no guile, that means craftiness, no hidden motives. The pure heart is marked by transparency and an uncompromising desire to please God in all things. I don't believe we can achieve that by ourselves. I think in that we need the Holy Spirit, don't we? And so that's another form of surrender. He's our teacher, he's our helper. 
And one of the best prayers to pray is to ask that you would hear him saying, this is the way, walking it. Like he promised. He'll gently nudge you if you're going off track. Let's trust him. He'll give you that little check in your spirit when you're speaking out of turn. We can only tune in to him in this way when we're humble. If you've got any sort of pride, you're not going to hear the Holy Spirit. We've got to come before him, humble ourselves. That's that meekness that John was speaking of the other week. Because it all dovetails together, doesn't it? It's fascinating me going through these Beatitudes, how they've dovetailed like that. So, the only way we can be truly pure in heart is to give our lives to Jesus and ask him to do the cleansing work. Psalm 51 verse 10 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God is the one who makes our hearts pure. By the sacrifice of his son and through his sanctifying work in our lives. So we come to him and he purifies us. It's a, it's a great exchange, that, isn't it? We've got some work to do too. We need to be that willing and that active participant. James 4 verse 8 says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The rest of that verse tells us to mourn because of our sin and humble ourselves and then God will exalt us. It all goes back to those Beatitudes again, doesn't it? They all tie together. Psalm 24, verse 3 to 5 says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So we must take those steps to be clean, but he ultimately cleanses us so that we can see God. Okay, Hebrews 10, I'm just going to go a few, a couple of verses. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We're not only washed clean by his blood and by fire, but by being obedient to his word. We're told that Jesus uses his word to wash us clean as we read it and apply it to our lives. Ephesians 5, 26 to 27, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There are so many verses that talk in this way about being purified by God, being presented to God as a pure and spotless bride. They, and they all, a lot of them, point to seeing God as well. The Greek word that's used for see is optanomai, translated as to gaze with wide open eyes as at something remarkable, different from simple observation. That was the actual explanation of it. It's the very first time that word is used in the entire Bible. It's the first time. 
in that passage. And, and it's primarily used to, you know, to seeing God or Jesus. And then after that, it's used in 1 John 3, 2 to 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Because we can't go into the presence of a holy God unless we've been made holy. Because we'll just burn up. That's what I think. We'll be a, a pile of ashes. Nothing unholy can survive the presence of God. That's why Jesus came and saved us. In my study Bible, it says that the catharos, purity, takes place at the new birth. 1 John 1.7 If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Do you, do you get it now? Are you purified? You understand we're pure. We have that new identity and it's connected with Christ so that we then can go on, we can fulfill that great commission, we can walk in our authority and we can do mighty exploits, can't we? So let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, that you did the work and washed us clean that we're pure because of you. Help us to see ourselves and each other as you see us. Help us to walk in our faith identity and authority as ambassadors for you here on earth. And help us to hear your voice, Holy Spirit, saying this is the way, walk in it. So that we can wash off those things that would seek to ensnare us and distract us. And Lord, as we've been singing, have your way in us. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' holy name, amen. <laughs>